Hello everyone, this is Azhar Hirani. Welcome to the first ever episode of Practice Unlocked. Today I have an amazing guest, Dr. Vatsala Bhaskaran. Welcome. And also my co-host, Priya Bhaskaran. Yes! <laughs> Fun you. fact guys, um, they're actually, uh, Priya is the daughter of Dr. Vatsala. So. I, was, I was in her womb. <laughs> <laughs> so, Dr. Vatsala, um, 30 years worth of experience in psychiatry. That's amazing. Yes. Uh, and also, you are a table tennis champion? I was. <laughs> back home in India, right? Oh, I see. Uh, where, where in India? Uh, I'm from Madras, Chennai. Very nice. Now it's called Chennai. Yes. And uh, I was playing table tennis uh, for about uh, 14 years. That is, I started when I was 12 or 13 years of age, and I played even during my medical school time, actually. Wow. I had to take time off when I was in my second year of medical school. I'm the only person in the history of India, the medical student, to, to take time off and come back and rejoin the medical school after that. You actually took off. I took to off play. for about three months. Amazing. And uh, this was in my second year of residence, uh, medical school training. And uh, I went to play the Commonwealth Games in Melbourne, Australia, Amazing. and then and then played the World Championship in in Calcutta. Amazing. And uh, so we were trained in Patiala by a co coach that came from Korea uh, for about sixty days. So we had all of that done before we went on our trip. So we were in training. So I missed school actually for three months. So when I came back. I had only 57 days to prepare for my final exam, my second year exam, which included uh, looking at the anatomy, because second year is anatomy and physiology and biochemistry. And all three I had to complete in 57 days. Amazing. And it was, it was my professor was so proud of me. And he said, whatever it takes, I'm going to spend time with you every evening and make sure you learn it. So, of course, I didn't get very high grades. I passed the second year, and that is what happened my second year. But, of course, after that, I didn't play for another year because my mother was very sick, so I was busy taking care of her. Right. So, so that is kind of a brief history of table my table tennis career. Era. What year is this? This was uh, 19... Uh, I was in medical school in 70... It was in 74, 75. Amazing. 1974. And, and uh, I'm assuming this is before you were born. Yes, right? way okay. before. Yeah, yeah. I see. Um, but, I but the one thing that she is leaving out is that she was number two in the country, number wow. one female in India wow. in table tennis. Wow. But number two to a man. Yeah. But I mean, I, I, I practiced, <laughs> I practiced uh, quite a bit. I was very... You know, one of the things that I learned as being a table tennis player, a professional table tennis player, that helped me even in this country is the fact that you put in a lot of hard work. A lot of hard work, you will achieve whatever you want to in your Absolutely, life. Yeah. And, and that is something that, that, uh, that came to me from, from back home, from India, that I was able to carry, uh, carry through even in my... Um, career here in the, in the United States, although I have played here too. I played with, I don't know, uh, Kabat Jayant is uh, one, of, uh, one of the top players in, in, in India. He also moved to this country and we played an exhibition match 
between he and I, uh, this was uh, in the early part when I came to this country. This was in mid, mid 1984, 83. Wow. And we played uh, for, as a fundraiser for the Houston Police Department. Oh, wow. Yeah, so that was uh, that was another thing that oh, I see. did. Of course, after that, you know, I was not, I mean, I was very busy with my practice, so I didn't, I didn't have time. Did you, did you continue playing, like, socially here and there? Uh, I have. Uh, I mean, the thing is, you know, once you become so good, yeah. then playing socially is not as, you know, because you're beating everyone. Yeah. You know, I'm sure. Back home, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I continued to some extent here, yes, but it is very hard to... Uh, continue playing, you know, have a successful practice, That's raising right. a family. I've got two great children. I'm oh, so wow. proud of them. And 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 also uh, being able to play, you know. I, I'm, I'm an avid exerciser. I still exercise quite a bit, you know, and that plays a very important part in my life too. Amazing. And I know you have 30 years worth of experience in psychiatry, generally, and I've read your bio. I wanted to read it out loud, but you know what? I think you would do it more justice than I would. Yeah. So, you know, please tell us about where did you go to medical college? And, and I believe you were in private practice, in public sector, and also group practice. So just, you know, just give us like a rundown of, okay. of your, your experience in the psychiatry field and any other medical field as well okay. in your professional career. Okay. I went to medical school back home in India. It's called Kilpak Medical College. There were four medical colleges at the time when I was going to medical school. Right now, there are many medical colleges and some are private colleges too. But I went to a government medical college and its college was Kilpak Medical College. I came to this country. I graduated in medical school in January of 1980. And I came to this country in, uh, and I was working for the Indian Railways for about four or five months. And then I got married in September 1918. I moved to this country in November 1980. So in 1981, um, 1981, July, I mean, you have to pass all the exams. I was able to pass all of Absolutely. those exams. And in July of 81, I started the psychiatry residency program in Baylor. Amazing. And, uh, and I, they gave me credit for my first year of internship oh, wow. uh, because uh, I did a, a compulsory internship back home. So they said, home I did not- in India. In India. Okay. So I, I did not have to do the internship in this country, so only do my three year of residency training, so which I did. And I yeah, I had yeah. Priya in during my third year of residency training. Amazing. And so I had to extend my residency for a couple of months because of going out on maternity leave. So in, in 19, in, instead of graduating in July of 84, I graduated in September of 1984. I see, and when you said Baylor, mean Baylor and Waco or? Baylor, Baylor College of Medicine. There are only two works. medical schools in Houston. One is UT and the other is Baylor College of Medicine. Right. Okay. So I'm from Baylor College of Medicine. College of Medicine is here, right? Yeah. Baylor itself is in Waco. Yeah, there right. is a, there there's is a, a university, right? Right, yeah. Baylor University. I didn't know there's, there's a difference. Yeah, there's there. a big difference. And one is a medical school, the other is, you know, has all of the so in September of 1984, I joined a full-time faculty to Baylor College of Medicine. Amazing. And that's when I worked for four years as an assistant professor of psychiatry, where I was able to teach medical students and residents. Mm -hmm. And I was assigned to the community mental health clinic as a medical director of the clinic. Mm -hmm. So after working four years, I worked about two to two and a half years to, at VA hospital. So in all of this, it was an incredible experience for me uh, about working with other people, you know, 
providing excellent care, learning. I mean, of course, I was trained very well at Baylor. We had a very good uh, training program, psychiatry training program. So, and so I left VA in uh, in September of nineteen um, na- um, nineteen eight. I mean, end of uh, nineteen, uh, beginning of nineteen ninety. I left uh, Baylor. I mean, I left the full time faculty and I wanted to do private practice. So that's when I started private practice in September of nineteen ninety. Amazing. And what made you want to like go into private practice at that time um, from Baylor, essentially? Yeah, I actually went. It took me several months to, you know, I know as a first physician, you know, it's incredible. My knowledge of business was so limited and none. I would say none. Mm-hmm. And everything I learned um, as I was starting my business. And for, you know, for a long period of time, I did not, I could not afford to support the overhead. And so I had to take a loan, mm-hmm. which I did. And that was able to support my office expense, mm-hmm. my staff. And their payment, and, their loan repayment, essentially. And, and I had to pay the loan off. But of it was, I said, I'm going to take this opportunity to explore the area. Because the area that I started was Pasadena. And there was no female psychiatrist. Pasadena, Texas. Pasadena, yes. Texas. Mm-hmm. There was no female psychiatrist. There was only wow. three male psychiatrists. I said, it's a great opportunity for a first female to come and yeah. start the practice. So... My goal in the first two or three months was to visit all the family practice doctors. And I personally visited all of them. I did my own marketing. And, uh, and, uh, and I started uh, building my practice in that way. So it took me about six to eight months. Amazing. I think one of the big things that the young psychiatrists who come out right now should know that they are going to put some effort you know, hard work in so they can uh, putting the effort and you may not make that kind of income in the first six to eight months, which is okay, uh, but you should be able to bear that. I mean, luckily that was not an, I mean, I was able to get the loan and was able to pay off the loan. So when I established myself in the practice grew very rapidly after, because I was able to go and visit with many of these family practice doctors and they began to trust me. They used to send me patients and that's how my practice grew. So I was a solo practitioner for about 10 years. Mm-hmm. But the, the problem with solo practice is that you're your own, I mean, it's an amazing, you're your own boss. Yes. You dictate your own number of patients that you see, you have your staff, you have your space, everything is good, but you cannot go on vacation yeah. because there has to be somebody covering your practice. Okay. I mean, somebody is covering your practice, that means uh, they, you have to pay them. They're not going to do it free of charge for you unless you have an arrangement with them. And that is when uh, my mentor, uh, I, I respect him a great deal, Dr. Jacobs, Mark Jacobs, he approached me. And I was, when he and I were working together at St. Joseph Hospital, I was doing inpatient work. I did uh, most of my business. St. Was, Joseph Hospital, which is a, which is a governmental no, hospital. No, no, St. Joseph is a, is, a, is a Catholic hospital oh, that was... It was. Um, it is a med-surge hospital with a psychiatric wing to it. it. So a lot of the hospitals in this, I'm sure you're aware of, in this, you have a freestanding psychiatric hospital and then you have psychiatric wings that are part of med- medical surgical hospitals. Right. So you could have a medical problem uh, on a psychiatric patient. You can immediately transfer the patient to the medical side. So that was the advantage of having a, med- a psychiatric wing to a medical surgical hospital, which is, uh, which is what, uh, I mean, I had a great experience. I did about 10 to 12 years of, 
inpatient work. And oh, that's wow. when I met Dr. Mark Jacobs. He is my mentor and he, he invited me to join the group. And that yes. time he was one of the founding mem- members of the group called University Behavioral Health. It was the original group. Mm-hmm. So he asked me to join. So, but I thought through the whole thing and, mm-hmm. and, I, and then made the decision, yes, I'm going to join there. And the advantage of the group practice versus is that you have significant amount of loss of control of your practice. It is a group setting. Yeah. And it is, uh, the whole thing is managed uh, by the f- group of five or six doctors. And the amazing thing is the these people who, st- who took me in as a member of the group, they treated me with same same respect. Mm-hmm. And I was able to do very well and they respected me, they trusted me and, and we worked very well together. How many so, were in the group? At that time, we were only about six of us. Okay. Six Which of for us. Texas is a big group because yes, usually you see like Northeast, like, you know, Northeast yeah. hospitals have bigger groups. Mm-hmm. Um, five, six doctors is a very small group. Well, but especially in, Texas, in the mental health, been, yeah. especially in the mental health area because yeah. there's probably not, like now there's probably a lot of psychiatrists and therapists available, but I'm sure back then there probably wasn't. Not, so, not that many. Yeah. That is very true. That is very true. So we had, and when I joined the group, it was amazing. I learned a lot about the business part of it. You know, I mean, I knew what a business part of it was. A small business I was running because I was a solo practitioner. You know, I knew years, how. Right? Yeah, for yeah. ten years I did it. You know, you know. Of course, I worked very, very hard to build the practice, but it was easy for me to join. And but the advantage I saw was. I could take time off and I could have somebody else cover my practice. And these were all quality doctors who were my business partners. And I mean, quality, I mean, they provide very good care. You know, I respect them a great deal and they respect me also a great deal. So that is one advantage I I saw in joining that group. Mm -hmm. And that group has grown. And, And now it is 14 of us and it's a different name right now. When we were initially part of that group, we were managing Prudential Insurance Company, mental health part of the Prudential Insurance Company. So it is. So they were giving us, which, which, which is again a new experience for me. You know, where the the Prudential Insurance Company gave so many dollars for the mental health treatment of the entire city of Houston, yeah. and we were able to provide the care for them within that dollar time frame in the dollar frame framework i see so, so was it like one of those insurances where this is this is how much um we're willing to give anything you save you get to sh- keep a share of it? absolutely okay and okay. that is how it was and that uh, i don't know the exact so name it's like a capitated it. model is that what it's called or did you get any fee for service uh, it was not fee for i mean we we created our own fees for that because Amazing. we kept it within that uh, frame that amount of money that we got we ca- we had to keep it within that and whatever money yes we it was distributed as a profit to all of us you know but you only took one insurance essentially the whole practice right now, at that time we only took one insurance okay. but what happened was they saw they saw that we ran the business very successfully what they decided to do is to manage it themselves so they took the whole business to themselves. So we lost that part of the business. But, but that did, has, they, did they end up doing better or worse? Well, it's very hard. Prudential is no longer psychiatric services. They <laughs> so don't they provide do. psychiatric yeah. services. So that's our, that's our answer, basically. Yeah. <laughs> so they didn't do good. <laughs> they should have left it with you. Now, whenever <laughs> corporate gets involved in the business, uh, the medicine side of you know the business, uh, 
it, it usually dwindles down yeah. uh, because you know businesses always think they can do better which they can but when it comes to the medical business when you have the physicians running physicians it, running it you know i mean it's uh, amazing they, yeah. what a quality work i mean we provided even emergency clinics wow. you know which is for those patients who did not have the time to see the doctor individually they could come to this emergency clinic and this was operated by one of the six of the doctors and so we had an amazing setup that was uh, uh, that was an operation but unfortunately it was taken away course, and uh, and after was, that like, bought into that practice that hey the better we do the better it is it's it's one of those very rare occasions where it's a win 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 situation yeah. where it's you know number one best best for the patient because the doctor's taking an extra care of them because i believe like seeing a a uh, conflict seeing a uh, patient for a consult is cheap compared to if they end up in the hot, in the ER that is a big bill and that's what you always try to avoid correct as a as a psych you know psychiatric doctor right 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 and so, of course you know i mean it was uh, but then that's how i came to know our cfo who's uh, was an amazing cfo and i think when we went through the pandemic crisis we suddenly lost four staff we lost two of them thanks to priya came and worked for us wow. at that time uh, our cfo um, was uh, able because, to hire because her of COVID, because of covid they dropped they just left the practice oh, they left the practice they, they left pass. the group okay. practice okay. you know okay, of course so. and so they to you know what happened was uh, the practice grew you know and we were only paper chart you know paper of chart course, paper yeah. graph so we started incorporating at that time we started incorporating the electronic health records and, and what is this this is in this was in in it was about 10 i would say about 12 12 13 years ago okay that's when okay. everyone started because it, i know because when president obama kind of came into the office he said hey you will get get penalized if you use paper charting compared to the yeah and, and of course there oh, were a lot of advantages and even and medicare also was. provided uh, a incentive to convert into electronic health records that's what it was it yeah. was and i was i was it is very, it was very it was expensive very for us to even you know and again i'm saying uh, we had a very good uh, dr jacobs monk jacobs was running the organization he was a president and he ran the organization i mean he was just amazing person and the way he negotiated that um, contract for electronic health records was amazing and you know i was one of those who was totally against it i'm so used to putting all the information on the chart i am one of those he need took a long time for me to get convinced but now i you love it you can't live without it i cannot right? live without it i yeah. just love it you know and i one of those who who completes charts my charts is never incomplete wow. it's always complete and so do you have a scribe that come, when you go see a patient you have a scribe next to you or you do your own scribing as well i won't do that but we have a format we have a format that is you know we have the, we have two components of the electronic uh, records we have a practice management component and we have the electronic health record component the practice management is the business part of it where you're entering the seeing the patients the copay that's collected the insurance company so you know and that's what I'm, by the staff that's done by the yeah. staff and electronic health record component is my information that goes into the into the medical that's record right. and so there are two components to it and we still have that and i think the first one i mean first we introduced the practice management component of it then only the electronic health record came into existence so it i mean it took us about uh, 
Uh, I think about, uh, I would say 2013 is when the electronic pa practice management part of it was introduced. And 2014 is when the electronic health records came into existence. So uh, we became part of it. And of course, you know, um, I love it. Right now, I love it. And it's 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 very thorough. And, um, and of course, you know, I'm not saying it's very expensive, you know, but our doctors have grown. And the amazing thing is, uh, um, and again, the same CFO is no longer in existence. We have a different CFO. She retired. Of course, she's been with us for over 25 years. And she finally retired. And we have a, a gentleman that comes in. Now, right now, I think part of joining the group, uh, there's so many advantages. Besides, you know, I mean, though it is run as a group practice, big part of is still individual practice. You know, I dictate how long I want to work, whether I want to work the whole uh, five days a week or only three days a week, what I want to work, you know, all that, I make the decision. Is it is it like RVU based or are you guys a shared expense model or? Yeah, it's very much, you know, for, for my local is uh, my office space, the rent is shared by the three doctors. We are three doctors in our location two child psychiatrists and the adult psychiatrists. So we share the expense of the rent there. Right. And then we have four staff. I have four very good staff. I'm very blessed, you know, and and part of the reason is I treat them as my, my uh, very important person in my life, you know, Amazing. because I cannot be successful if they're not going to produce the same effect for me. You know, and they, they work very hard and they are very dedicated to me. So, I appreciate whatever they do and I constantly tell them, you know, and they they have problems. I, I respect their problems and and if they have to take time off to deal with it, I respect that too. And so that also goes coincides with you giving them proper pay as well as absolutely. bonuses and just different things that help motivate the climate. Absolutely, and the absolutely. Yeah. And that is one thing about the group practices that, you know, I mean, uh, there are some changes that are brought up in terms of uh, documentation, in terms of what needs to be done, in terms of this particular insurance company, this particular insurance company can only does this. So all of this information is is done by our staff. They are educated. Absolutely. I mean, it's just incredible. I mean, I cannot be successful without them. I really can say that, yeah, you know. And then, but the whole, so your group has four uh, practitioners, uh, but your overall group is that the total amount? Of we are we are actually uh, five different locations. Okay. Okay. Um, we are. I'm in the southeast location where we have three doctors. Mm -hmm. Okay. And we have a Peerland location where there are two doctors, mm -hmm. and then there is San Felipe location where we have three doctors. Okay. And then we have central location where the main office is. Luke Central uh, location, we have about now about four, four or five doctors right now. And do you guys have your own psych hospital? I know a lot of psychiatrists. No, we don't have our psych hospital. You know, the two any of the... Any affiliation? Uh, right now, um, you know, the two, the two doctors who do hospital, it's very hard to do hospital work these days. Because very hard the in the sense, no, it was a... Not so much reimbursement, but um, 
more or less, it's very difficult to manage because I was doing hospital work, you know. So every, as I said, you know, whoever works with me, I always respect their input. So we used to have a case manager whose main job was to contact insurance company and find out how, what they're doing. So, you know, in the hospital setting, their main job was to do that. And I always included them in my staffing because they need to know what is happening to all my patients. So the system is very different right now. And it is very hard to get patients into the hospital, very hard to discharge patients, to deal with the bureaucracy, not only in the hospital, but also dealing with the insurance companies. So I don't do hospital work, you know, I was doing, but I don't do it now. But even in our 14 member group, there are two hospitals that we use. They, they have a lot of problems with quality of care because they've gone through a lot of changes in ownership. So we're, we try very hard to manage the patient in the office setting. If they cannot, if they're acutely suicidal, then definitely they have to be in the hospital. So I do wanna get into the, uh, the kind of patients that you see and I know, you know, and, and any practitioner when they're practicing, uh, it can be tough. You know, you're, you're, you're dealing with all sorts of personalities and how you, when you go home, you, you have to kind of switch that off. Uh, but also number one, is there a call situation usually in psychiatry? You have to be on call at a certain time. Well, because I'm part of, you know, as I told you, and I was a solo practitioner. But generally, let's say generally as a Generally, uh, 14 of us, we take calls. So I, I take a call maybe once, I'm covering for 14 doctors, okay. once in two or three months I take a call. But that's uh, pretty The whole weekend, yeah, yeah. the whole weekend. But Monday through Friday, I take my own calls. Even so in the middle of the night? If they call, yes, I have, to, I have to be available. Amazing. So, but on weekends, you know, we take turns, Amazing. only on weekends. But weekdays, you know, I take my own calls. So Amazing. it's it's not that bad. It is not, it has not been that bad in your, uh, yeah, you're right. You know, it. Uh, I mean, the type of uh, diagnosis diagnosis that I generally see because I'm in private sector. I told you when I was working in public sector, we dealt with a lot of the chronic schizophrenic, chronic psychotic patients. Mm -hmm. In the private sector, we deal with depression, anxiety, ADHD, bipolar disorder. I mean, this is. The, spectrum and we I, it's not like i don't have schizophrenia i do have a few patients who are schizophrenic in my practice right. but that's not my predominant practice my practice mostly is depression and anxiety it's very interesting as i've seen in the last 30 years the first 10 to 12 years of my practice was predominantly women that came to get help now i'm seeing equally men and women are getting help and we're seeing all kinds of professionals are getting help from nurses great. to even doctors have medical students who get help mm -hmm. and you know we have we have a variety of patients that come amazing and that's really important to actually seek help you know, yeah as, as patients well just being in the asian community culturally mental health isn't really addressed or talked about like it's kind of taboo mm -hmm. so now in 2023 since you started your career to now are you seeing more people in the asian community uh, that help? that has been increased but not as much in our indian asian community not many i don't know why they don't 
reach out as much, you know. They're considered uh, weak, I'm sure. Like, uh, you know, or, well, or I mean, saying, again, there yeah. is still there is a considerable stigma. You know, right. I I play a great deal where I see these patients. I do a lot of education, you know, because the illness, the mental illness, is not because you've not prayed hard enough. You're you're a bad person. You know, yes, it's a devil that's after you. We don't we don't think like that. It is another medical problem, just like you have diabetes. And there are so many factors that play a part in how diabetes is managed, whether it is just medications or how your diet is managed. How do you, how, how your spouse is involved in your care for your diabetes management. And all of that play a part even in managing depression and anxiety. You know, how do you get the family involved and how do you, so I always do an education of them that this is a medical problem. This is not... Um, a bad that you're a bad it's human not, being. It's not a personality trait. Absolutely yeah, not. Yeah. And but what I'm saying is, yes, it has been very difficult for the Asian community because, you know, I'm bound by HIPAA. I'm bound by confidentiality. Absolutely. So I have some prominent people in this country, in this uh, town, who are seeing me. But I'm. I cannot talk about that. Of course, I cannot even talk to them about it. I cannot talk to anybody about it. Even my staff are all. Um, you know, when they see these people in their in grocery store, they don't even talk. They don't even go near them. They don't even want to say that they are part of Absolutely. of of us because we're very very concerned about confidentiality. Absolutely. And I don't think the Indian community has. A good feeling for that. I mean, they yeah. uh, they are under they, they the impression require, that I'm going to be gossiping. Yeah. I cannot. I just cannot. Of course, they require a lot of education. Right. Yes. There's a lot of education, you know, and and you know, I was part of an organization called Daya. I don't know. You yeah, know, yeah I've, I've I've heard of it. I've, yes, I it's. I, I was I was part of them for about 15 years. I have done uh, work with them. I used to supervise the caseworkers that used to work for them. And I have seen a lot of, and I used to provide free psychiatric can, care for many of them. Can you explain what DIA is a little bit? So somebody that doesn't yes. know. Yes, mm-hmm. DIA is an organization. Um, it's an organization just like Houston Area Women's Center. They primarily deal with domestic violence situation, uh, mostly women, because mm-hmm. there are some men who are also in domestic violence situation. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you know, these, these people, you know, are either coming into uh, calling uh, the offices, their office for help for not only for um, monetary help, right. for social service help, Absolutely. homelessness. You know, many of them don't even have place. They usually have to, we have to find a either hotel uh, and pay for the hotel. So it's a very difficult. Some of them have even the the spouses take away their uh, passport and take away the green card. So, and, like, uh, uh, so you guys get help from the local law enforcement as well? Uh, yeah, we, besides the local law enforcement, we also provide, uh, I mean, it's amazing. The organization has grown so much. And uh, and of course, I was part of this organization for over 15 years. So, um, but I'm not actively involved. I'm in the advisory board. Mm-hmm. So, uh, what I'm saying is uh, that is a domestic violence situation is not just not in South Asian community. I see it in even in overall in, in, the, in, in the American community, both whites, yeah. uh, Hispanics, and um, blacks. You know, mm-hmm. have the same problem, but. What I'm saying is, yes, um, we, I don't see that many 
um, people in the Asian community seeking out for help. Maybe they're going to somebody else. You know, maybe you know. Uh, I don't know. I, I, because you're South Asian, a South Asian wouldn't want to maybe that's you know. I, it, South Asian wouldn't want to see a South Asian doctor yeah, for a because they're scared of the gossip. Maybe yeah, or, yeah, within the community. I, I, yeah, but uh, but you know we are we cannot we cannot. No, have, yeah, but I guess to the but outside, for to them, the outside, they're outside, right? Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. And then you know one of the things is I mean you see. Uh, a lot happen within your practice, you know, in terms of psych patients. Um, do you ever feel that, how do you turn that off when you get home and you're around your kids, you're around, you know, your your spouse, uh, for a physician itself, basically, is there, do you do something uh, mentally to help um, kind of make sure your work is at work and home life is home life? Is it hard to differentiate? I, I think it is, it is, was hard. Mm-hmm. But now I'm doing better at it. Um, uh, 30 years later, you're doing uh, better at it. <laughs> better at it. My, my job is to keep work at work and mm-hmm. home life is different. Mm-hmm. But I do a lot of other things. I exercise, you know, and of course I spend a lot of time with my children, which uh, I paint, mm-hmm. I, I read. So a lot of other things I do. And of course, I socialize, you know, we have um, with my colleagues quite a bit. I do some socializing, you know, right. we talk and, you know, I think, uh, you know, being a part of a group has helped me a great deal, you know, because I have the sense of camaraderie with them, a sense of feeling that, um, you know, I can count on them. Yes. Even You're if not I, alone, if, like, you know, in any situation. Absolutely not. Any... And which is very different from being a solo practitioner. And let's say if, if there's a difficult case, do you guys amongst your colleagues discuss Absolutely, that case? absolutely. That's what I'm saying. You know, I had a very, very difficult elderly patient. Very difficult elderly. And whatever I did, you know, they were so committed to seeing me. They're not going to leave me. So I had to get a second opinion. So I called one of my colleagues in the central location. I told her, please, this is the gist of the case. Please see it and give me your feedback. And she saw the patient, gave me feedback. And the patient is doing well, you know, because, you know, I'm using all the feedback. But yes, I think it plays a very big, important part in having colleagues in your office because you can always consult with them, you know. So, you know, it is very interesting, you know, we have... uh, one of the doctors who's going to join us on the from the PLN location, she wants to join our group. And she was saying, oh, I've been alone for so long in my PLN location. Oh, I'm so happy. I'm going to be with you guys and you, especially you with so much of experience. I'm looking forward exactly. to it. You know, so that is, that is, it's nice to hear that. From Absolutely. Her. So when it comes to, um, you know, for current physicians that are in the, that are psychiatrists, um, I have, you know, uh, I know a few of them, uh, but not a lot of them. Uh, and I do see a lot of them. Um, I know someone that's actually at Baylor. I know someone that's solo. I know someone that's in a group, but they do like psych hospitals together and, you know, more ancillaries to bring in more revenue for their practice. Um, do you think financially going into a group practice or being a solo, you know, kind of solo practitioner or with the hospital financially? what is best for them. I'm sure there's trade-offs, there's pros and cons for each. So please kind of... Okay, you know, sure, uh, sure. But I probably have experienced all of them. That's why that's why I'm so one in experience. So when I was a solo practitioner, and for about nine, ten years, I was a solo practitioner, at which point I was doing a lot of hospital work. 
along with the office work. So I was seeing patients in the hospital and seeing patients. So you can get uh, quite a bit income uh, from doing hospital work. Your income is very high. Is it contract-based? Is it like hourly-based or is it... Uh, it is number of patients you see. Okay. There's a contractual rate that they, they per assign patient or per, per patient okay. and how, how it is assigned per day that you see. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to see the patient six days a week. You have to do rounds even on a Saturday. Sure. And if possible, even on Sundays, I used course. to do rounds if there were patients that were admitted at that time. So hospital ways, you can make money too, doing hospital I know work. I've also seen hospitals hire their own staff nowadays, right? Mm-hmm. So I know that a lot of the contracting, they're trying to cut down. Have you seen that in psych itself? Not because so I know much. Like the, you know, the primary care used to go to the hospital to, to do the rounds. And of course, that is also because the patient can follow them back into the private clinic. Um, but I know in psych, it must be different. Uh, in psych, it has not come there yet. Okay. We don't have hospitalists right now because okay. there's not that many facilities and uh, to take care of psych patients, that I many see. facilities. You know, we used to have a lot of facilities and we used to have a lot of doctors who used to practice in the hospital. You know, even in my group, which are 14 doctors, only two of them actually practice hospital work. So when we refer patients, you know, when I have a very difficult patients, I usually call one of them to see the patient in the, in the hospitals that they go to. So hospital, seeing hospital patients is a good source of income, but it also, there's a, it's a two-edged sword because you have to, when I was working at St. Joe's, which is a Catholic hospital, and I used to take calls there. When you take a call, it is called once a month and for the whole week. And so you take, you have to take every patient, even the patients who cannot have money to pay. You have to see those patients. So I remember my office manager would say, oh, this is our time to write off and let's <laughs> say uh, good to our prayers to the God. So yeah, we are doing writing off so much of money yes. every, every, because we cannot, we cannot collect from those people. Absolutely, and uh, so the hospital work is a two-edged sword. You can, you can make uh, quite a bit of money but you can also lose a lot of money too. Okay, so I don't do, I mean, I enjoyed hospital work because I like to work as a team. I like to work with nurses. I like to see responses of patients with the, with the interventions. And I was so happy with the treatment, but it was a lot of work. And uh, so as you got, as you get older, you don't want to do that. So that's how, that's how I cut down my hospital work. But right now, I run a program in my office called um, uh, Intensive Outpatient Psychiatric Group, uh, which is these are patients who are in crisis, either at work or at home. They are in crisis and they come to this program. And, uh, and they, our job is to prevent them from being hospitalized. So I follow them very closely and they attend the program Monday to Friday and 9 a.m. to 12 noon. So because of the COVID, we are doing it as a video Zoom session, but otherwise they used to come to the office and Monday through Friday. So these are the very difficult patients. You know, so I have patients coming from Texas Children's Hospital nurses or, or teachers that are from the, on the school district who are having problems with the students or, or it could be uh, our plant operators who are coming from DAV plants, you know, different uh, work-related problems. They would be attending the program. So we, they usually uh, are attending the program 
the five days a week. Our goal this day about four to five weeks in the program. We keep them off of work during the time when they're staying. So we give them all the tools to go deal with those problems. If they're not able to deal with it, they make the decision whether to stay in the program or quit the program. Is, is there a fee for that program? Yes, okay. yes, and uh, that's what I'm saying. It is a negotiated rate again with insurance companies. And you know, I was running the program for six. Years. I started the program in my office sixteen years ago. So I ran it for sixteen. Years. It's only in the last couple of months, you know. You know, I don't want to take on so much of work. I know it provides a lot of income, but in right now, my income is not for me. You know, uh, I want to cut down my practice and right. do less work. Work that's, smarter, not harder. <laughs> yeah, and that's why I think group practice helps as well. As you taper down your. Um, uh, yeah, uh, 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 my colleague has taken over, you know, and, and I tell them, you know, he's got two kids in college. I said that extra income, you can subsidize their college education. And I always, that's what I tell them. So that's another way of making money, mm-hmm. you know. And that the, the third way that, that I'm doing right now is we have a specialized treatment called transcranial magnetic stimulation, TMS it is called. Mm-hmm. And you can look it up in the Google it and look it up. It's a, it is a new form of treatment. Um, and the, the, the treatment uh, provides uh, care for treatment-resistant depression patients. Mm-hmm. So it is, I found, um, we've been running it in our office for the last two and a half years. And, um, and I've had about 100, about 100 patients in it. 90, 90% have done very well. Amazing. You know, it is, it's a very good treatment. And if the treatment is, you know, they put an electrode on the, on the scalp, you know, and they have electromagnetic waves that pass through the skull into the brain tissue and it changes the chemicals in the brain. Amazing. And it is, uh, it is being offered. We provide, uh, it is 36 treatments. It is covered by insurance. And all insurances. All in, I mean, almost all of them cover Which it. one doesn't? Like, is it like you know, TRICARE or like, you know, is it Medicaid? I don't know about TRICARE. I don't know about Medicaid. Uh, but uh, the Medicaid, traditional Medicare covers it. You know, okay. I'm the only one who takes Medicare patients. You know, I'm all the others those, take more commercial. Uh, more, more of them commercial. I am. Yes. I take the management. I'm the one of those. You know, although you know, we don't get. I don't get paid as well as the other people. It doesn't matter for me. Uh, this is something I want to do to the community. I want to treat the older patients. So, are you on like managed care contracts? Oh, a lot of them. Okay, because mm-hmm. psych is huge in, in managed care. Yeah. So, um, and how you you know handle the patients because a lot of them are frequent flyers to the ERs. Right, right, right. And, so and, and we try very hard not to. You know, we try very hard. That's what I'm saying. Um, I. I take Medicare, manage Medicare and commercial insurance. But the two doctors that I work with, they're child doctors. They only they are they only take care of fifty percent of their patients are adult patients, but all of them are children and adolescents. That's what like they like the take. chip plans and things like that. Or they don't they, they, we don't take Medicaid. That's a problem. We don't oh, take Medicaid. We only take and uh, we only take Medicare. I'm the only one. And we are about four doctors in a fourteen member group. We are only four doctors that take Medicare and manage Medicare. Oh, right. So many of them are only taking commercial insurance. But the advantage of, that I have with the group is that we are able to negotiate with the insurance payers because we are a large 14-member group. We can say, if you're not going to come, you know, we have the option of coming out. That's and it's more 14, power than just one. Like if one, you were solo, absolutely. you couldn't do that. I could you not do it. Flex the weight. So yeah. you're so, uh, I was going to get to that actually, yeah. so that, you know, 
So you're currently in network with these insurance companies? Many of the insurance payers. So if the patient wants to come see you, it's a lot easier because you pretty much almost a lot yeah, of the but, but the part of the problem is we are so full. Absolutely. And yeah, it is issue. very hard to get appointments. And that is why we are we are trying very hard. I mean, if we have doctors that are willing to come and join our practice, right. we have business. And uh, because we have we have con contractual agreement with so many managed care companies, Absolutely. so many managed care companies. So it would be hard. It won't be like me. I it took me six to eight months to build my practice. It'll take a couple of months for them to build their practice. How, how how booked are you guys? Like we are. I'm I'm actually booked to two months. Wow. And two I, months. And I know when I need a physician, and, when I call, and there's a wait time. Uh, it's very discouraging yeah. and I have to look for someone else. So right, you guys right. are all, and, and already that's, uh, losing uh, business too. That's a problem, you know, we, we, because our, our business is so full right now. And that's you, why I'm saying, you know, if we have a new doctors and we're trying so hard to find new doctors. Uh, recruit doctors. So do you guys have any like mid-levels or PAs or nurse that is That is the part that we have. This is, uh, our group is the only group that does not hire mid-level staff. We are any, doing everything ourselves. Any, any, any reason why? That's a very good question, and that's what we are exploring right now. Okay. Because of uh, the fact that we are not able to provide the service and we are having a hard time finding doctors, mm -hmm. so we are looking at hiring nurse practitioners. We are looking at it. I mean, it's just in the very early stages right now. But I guess that's kind of like another disadvantage because if you, per se, one of several doctors wants to implement something like that, you still need to consult the other members of the oh, group yes, yes. and it has some majority rules. So that could be an advantage, but a disadvantage at the same oh, time. Oh, absolutely. Sure, and yeah, that I'm is sure a, a board and everything. Yeah. You have to and that is, that is what I'm saying. I'm in the executive board. You know, I'm in the executive, I'm one of the top five people who, I mean, we, we discuss all of these issues, mm -hmm. but... What I'm saying is, yes, it is an it is something that is being discussed, and we are looking at it. We're looking at we're looking at our risk management part of it, our malpractice insurance. We have to get everybody involved in this. Absolutely, so, yeah. So we are exploring that. To answer your question, yes, we are exploring and, that. And someone might be. Why would someone oppose it? Is it because they don't have as much? No, out of the fourteen people, is all fourteen of them are busy, or you're part of four or the busy? No, all of us are very, very busy. All of incredible. us very busy. So I'm sure busy. the incentive is to make sure we hire someone. Yes, the agreement has to be physician. Yeah, I mean the problem is the one is of course uh, the liability level. issues, you know, and even sense. if uh, we are sued, we'll be sued. The supervising doctor will have to be sued. We'll be sued. Absolutely. Uh, just as the nurse practitioner is sued. So we're looking at the legal aspect of it, the risk management aspect of it, all the of cost. that we're exploring. Yeah. You the know. cost as well because and that's a huge factor for doctors. No, it is not. You know, actually, we were looking at, you know, we have created a pro forma. It's very interesting. You know, uh, our CF, present CFO has created a pro forma along with mm -hmm. our president. You know, they're looking at two or three pro formas that can help. But, you know, we have to get all of this cleared. We have to get a legal clearance. We have to get a malpractice insurance clearance. And uh, and we have to find space. You know, we are all so full right now. Wow. You know, so, uh, you know, I, ideally, I would like to have therapists. I don't even have therapists in my office. I was just telling my colleague um, last week, I said I had I had seen patients in the in my telemedicine. Four of them were asking therapists. Four, 
and I have not a single therapist in, in my the ho- in your office. You in know, my office, but what about all fourteen? Does anyone else have a therapist? Oh, uh, they have, but they don't have food. That's what I'm saying. So they what's stopping you from getting that therapist? It's very hard to hire a therapist. You know, That's we are just in the process of we are talking to a therapist that is leaving. Um, uh, the problem is they many of them don't even want to work full time. They want to work part time, right. and you know it's very hard to pay your uh, overhead expenses if you're going to work part time. We have the space to uh, put people in, so there's a lot of factors that play a part in. Uh, um, making this, you know, I mean, we need therapists, we need nurse practitioners, you know, both of them we need, you know, uh, for us to, I mean, uh, I cannot take on any more responsibility. I mean, I'm working three days a week, you know, I'm cutting down my hours, but, Mm -hmm. you know, I've been with this organization for over 22 years, so. Is there overall uh, in the United States, is there is there abundance of psych doctors out there or there's Absolutely. a shortage? Absolutely. There's such a shortage of there's a shortage, psych, okay. Shortage of psych doctors, you know. And part of the problem it's is... It's not a shortage of psych doctors. I think the patient population is growing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's, that's yeah. what may be. Okay. The patient population is growing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, uh, but we are having an acute shortage of uh, doctors. We're not able to have that many... Uh, I mean, and also, if you're coming out of um, residency program, there are full-fledged clinics that will hire you for almost what we are what you can make from us mm-hmm. you know are already hiring so why would somebody with a loan of a quarter million dollars you know medical student loan take on the six four three four months wait to get a good income versus somebody uh, being offered an immediate uh, job which will offer enough money for them you know and that has been a challenge for us you know to Absolutely. compete with those people to find a doctor. Absolutely. So in terms of like psych and income for generally, I'm not saying for you specifically, but for generally for psych doctors, um, I know that I was involved in a ancillary business called toxicology, which we work with a lot of you know, psychiatrists, mm-hmm. um, where, which is urine toxicology testing mm-hmm. essentially. And for, as a psychiatrist, every, you have to send a lot of your patients through mm-hmm. that screening. Now, Ancillaries like that uh, help make physicians make extra money on the practice that they're already doing. Mm-hmm. So if they're utilizing a service, if it's legal, it's a compliant, they're you know able to get paid from it uh, as a partner, not per how many you know patients they send through, but through a partnership. Mm-hmm. Is there other ancillaries that other psych doctors can look into that they may not be aware of? I know you said TMS. I'm assuming that would be a a program. A, let's say a psychiatrist in New York or uh, uh, Alabama or someone else can, you know, some other state can look into. Uh, but I do know that state to state, a lot of laws differ in uh, the ancillaries that a physician can be involved in. And of, of course, they have to be compliant with the uh, uh, rules, and, and, you know, anti-kickback, antitrust. Anti- oh, absolutely. There is, um, what's the big one? I forgot. Um, there is a yeah I know what you're talking about <laughs> uh, yeah. that usually doctors get into trouble yes for. exactly there is a yeah you're right I, I cannot that's a, it's remember. a person's name or something yeah yeah uh, but, you know so is, is there is there ancillaries that you can it's very uh, difficult to okay. find um, I mean again um, 
because we're very, very uh, strict. Even hiring nurse practitioner has been <clears throat> a challenge, you know, although we've been talking about for the last two months, you know, um, it is still a challenge to get the process rolling, you know, even things, those things that can work. But in terms of other ways of making income, it's only related to psychiatry that we can make income, you know. Mm -hmm. You know, that is CMS is one, the group uh, treatment is one other one. There's mm -hmm. another way of making, hospital is another way of so making. So do you go to like a, when it comes to uh, like a companies, I know you contract with companies, did you, your group have to negotiate uh, this program with the companies or you negotiated that with the insurance with the, companies? With that the TMS? You know the 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 where you said you guys do uh, you guys meet uh, group calls five days a week um, where you know folks from uh, bigger companies come and join um, or you guys have the availability for these guys to kind of get on a call with you guys. Well, the group calls I think she was referring to was the group therapy. So like group therapy. Yes. 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 So so yeah. So some patients will come virtually on. Um, like the telehealth kind of side mm -hmm. where mom would probably like look at the people and like kind of have like an open forum kind of thing and make sure that they're on the right course as far as their medication, their treatments. And right, absolutely. So on and so forth. So all of that is related to psych treatment is what we do. So uh, like, you know, basically to get that kind of business, did you have to negotiate with the insurance company and say, I will offer that? Or uh, with the companies directly, or are they third parties? So, if you're looking into group therapy, yes, group therapy. it is negotiated with the insurance company directly. Yes, directly, insurance, and you know they have a rate, everyday rate okay. on that. So, uh, everyday rate. So, patient attending five days a week, they'll be billed for five days a week. Got it. And uh, but we are, uh, they are giving you that rate, but we are having hiring the the therapist to run the program. So the cost of running the therapist, the cost of uh, putting the program in the office, all of that is part of an expense. Absolutely. And yeah. so it's all of that is calculated as part of whether it comes under. Yes, it has been very successful because we are still able to maintain, you know, I think they pay per, per day. If I remember right, the group therapy, it is $250 a day for the therapy. You know, of course, we have hired a therapist, you know, who's about... Who's per person, everybody. 250 per day per person? Per or? day per person, Got right. That's one of the examples I'm giving you, you know. Mm -hmm. And each insurance company have different things, yes. Of course, they all per, have different rates. Different per day, per day, yeah. you know. And all of that, you know, billing all of that and, uh, you know, collecting all of that and, uh, you know, negotiating all of that. That's all right. of that is done. We have the, we have a very strong office setting not only in the central location, in our own location, you know, because to put in the data that the patient attended four days a week or three days a week is done by my senior staff. You know, she has to get the information from the therapist, um, either through a phone call and once a week, she has to send that information. The same way the TMS billing, you know, it is done by them, but the Medicare part of the TMS billing is done by my staff. So they have to call. You know, the, the TMS staff have to call my Corina, uh, uh, who is my office manager, and for her to bill at the end of the week. Got it. Uh, so there's so, certain CPT codes related to that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. There's and that's why I guess it's important to have a good support staff because 
if your support staff isn't trained efficiently or effectively, they can mess it up by putting in the wrong code. So then the absolutely. patient doesn't, or the insurance company de declines the absolutely, claim absolutely. and doesn't pay it. And that's why the training is very important, you know. Absolutely. And that's why my senior, the office manager that I have right now, she's been with me for 25 years. Wow. You know. 25 years. 25 years. Wow. Yeah, she joined me when her son, when she was trained with us, her first son. Now he's in the military. Amazing. Wow. <laughs> so what I'm saying is uh, we are very, I mean, she's she's very good. Amazing. She's very good. How do you retain, first of all, how do you get talent uh, for your staff and how do you retain them as well? Because uh, you know, that's I'm, a big challenge right now everywhere. Very big challenge. You know, I can I can say it, it has been a big challenge, you know, but I'm I'm saying two and three, three of our staff have been there for a long time. I've been there. You know, for example, uh, Leonora, who's my office manager, she's been with me for over 20, 20 25 years right now. And, uh, and she was trained by my office manager who retired, you know, Rebecca. And Priya remembers that because as kids, they used to come and do the filing. You know, Priya, Rebecca would ask them to go, go and file, you know. <laughs> both Priya and Vijay have both come in and helped out. So Rebecca trained Leo. And wow. Rebecca was me for over 20 years. And she wow. retired because of medical illness. I mean, she, she was medically ill. And uh, so she retired. And Leo was trained by Rebecca. And uh, she stayed and she trained my office manager, which is Corinne. I didn't have Leo at the time. I had already had Corinne as my office manager. And then we have Angie, who's the older person. And she was with us. She left and then she came back. And uh, right now we have a another friend which we hired two years. My goodness, she's amazing, totally amazing. I am, we are. I am so amazed by her ability. And I feel like you know I'm talking about Reina. She's been with me now for two, over two years right now, but she is at the same level as my office manager. So wow. what question in your interviewing process? No, like what what do you ask? And what is the best response to know, hey, this staff member is going to be a potential that might work? Like, is there a particular question? Is there a particular response that you know, hey, this person will fit in this culture? Well, I think I think the biggest issue that we, of course, of course, we have to pay them good salary. You know, we have to pay so them. So that's very important. Pay, very pay, sure pay, the compensation is very important. And also, you know, uh, you know what are the benefits of joining us? You know what are the benefits? I mean, there are so you guys many. provide benefits. Oh yes, uh, we are providing healthcare benefits. We provide retirement benefits. Um, yeah, those are important. And of course, sick leave. You know, and private. That's, and that's tougher for solopreneurs, solo entrepreneurs, uh, uh, yeah. to provide those benefits. Mm -hmm. I know yeah, the benefits are... play a very important part. And of course, you know, it is not. It is not. It is very hard to hire people. And I think uh, we have two sets of interviews. I think Leo and Corina do the first interview. Then they ask the doctors to do the other interview, you know. It's very important. So they protect your time. And, Absolutely. Uh, they yeah. first so yeah. good staff, our good staff is always, uh, um, because of your, your most important, you know, uh, value is your, your time. So they're basically saving your time, mm -hmm. making sure the things that, as a physician, you don't have to do, they right. take care of. And that's very Now, important. I can tell you an instance, you know, where we had a staff mm -hmm. um, and she was German not to get vaccinated. She told us she's not going to get vaccinated. Mm -hmm. 
so it was very i mean we were very very uh, concerned about when we start bringing patients in you know and now she can wear the mask she cannot sit in the front desk she her her job will be restricted to the office so all of that we were thinking ahead because we were not sure whether we want to let her go but you know i was one of those who said you know if she really wants to be with us give her 6 months time let her talk to her doctor and then come back and let me know whether she wants to work with us with this you know getting vaccinated and then working now and so 6 months later she talked with the doctor she decided i mean it was not medical reason she just didn't want to get vaccinated mm-hmm. okay so she said i'm not interested in getting vaccinated i'm quitting the job I said okay we let her go and and that's and this is 6 months you guys gave her 6 months 6 months time to think about it got it you know so we worked with her you know and of course you know but the requirement that was there was because y'all do see a lot of elderly patients that have their immune system compromised so that's a liability as a absolutely and for for a as a group practice and if we are not going to get her involved she has to be physically in an office away from contact of other people if that is the case then how can we operate in you know because when you, when one of one staff is sick the other will come into the place and pitch in you cannot have that you know if, if a staff decides to um not do it you know yeah. or cannot do it you know absolutely no i mean there's so, so much financial vested within the employee right. um or your staff member you know then then you want to make sure that uh, to protect that as well to protect you know mm-hmm. minimize uh, the risk exactly minimize the risk and that's totally understandable now in terms of like is there a reason why a lot of physicians don't go into psych and maybe sh- would you even recommend um physicians that are um cuz psych is uh, i want to say is there a fellowship after uh their medical school or no you have to do residency you could do to do medical school and then you do four years of residency uh-huh it does the category but if you do child you do a two extra years so it'll be totally six years uh after medical school for child psychiatry and right now there is a great demand for child psychiatrists you know got it okay we don't have that many child psychiatrists unfortunately uh, is there so, a reason why you think uh, a, a a lot of medical students may not they're not I, going I don't to know I, i that's a very good question and that's what we've been exploring and i really don't know what is why there is less of the interest to get into psychiatry i don't know and i know um There are a lot of specialties where if you do one specialty you're allowed to do uh um you know like a, a similar specialty like uh, I mean I'll give an example a uh a internal medicine doctor can do gastroenterology exactly a cardiology exactly a uh, certain certain you know uh certain cases or just certain limitations that they have you know of course or a uh, interventional radiologist does a lot right, of right. you know vein work and things like that Um is there something like that in psych? Well, psychiatry and neurology there's some overlapping, you know. Say, yes. Okay. You know, I I because I treat elderly patients, so I have a patients with dementia, but I work very closely with them. I mean, the workup is primarily done by 
but the management of the behavior associated with dementia is done by me but the workup is done by the neurologist so yeah. i work hand in hand with the neurologist so yes there's some cross uh, you know and i also work very closely with obgyn doctors dealing with postpartum depression or uh, you know depression and anxiety associated with uh, you know so we work with obgyn doctors you know that's another thing that we do um i work with a lot of families but can a neurologist be starting a practice for uh psychiatry or no because you know internal med can do no uh, you cannot start a practice but a lot family. of the neurologists okay. treat psychiatry in many of the psychiatric patients get first treated by the family practice doctor or the internist right okay they come to us when they are having difficulty managing because a lot of my patients who come from family practice doctors they've already taken these medicines and it's not working for them and that's why they get referred to me right okay so so there is uh, a lot of uh, taking care of by the uh, family practice doctors and internists a lot of them take care of these patients before they send it to us amazing and then um and i believe uh, is your spouse also in the same you know same medical field no he's an accountant an accountant and okay, he great. he loves business so he's <laughs> counting your money that you're making <laughs> i don't know about counting my money but he loves the business part of the i mean uh, the accounting you know amazing. the amazing thing is you know i run my own business he runs his own business so amazing. you know this like uh, there's nothing like we we you know of course he does a, he he files all my taxes and all that you know you have to do these uh monthly taxes you have to send and every 9, 941 you have to do every quarter and there are forms that's a little above my head yeah it's above my head too <laughs> so i think those kinds of things yeah yes my spouse will probably be doing that and in terms of because I, i i know a lot of has he ever been uh involved uh in the practice meaning from a business side, side yes yes when we were of- uh, when i was a solo practitioner he used to do a lot more work but as a group practice you know even that's my, the benefit of the group practice is essentially 13 others uh, uh that that are family no, that, yeah, that are working together no yeah there's no nobody there's no need for anybody else to be involved Absolutely. so because yeah, you have your own cfo you have right, your own manager everything everything is going except that uh the the money that i make you know the taxes that i have to pay you know those yeah. are the kinds of things that he he has to do it amazing yeah. and the reason i asked i know because um a lot of successful physicians that i've seen uh especially the solopreneur the entrepreneur that you know does private practice usually their spouse is involved in some capacity uh usually in the billing side or usually in the uh as a practice manager um and i've seen a lot of those practices flourish because as a practitioner you're so busy seeing patients and then at the end of the day you have to do all the charting it may not be paper charting but you know you have to get caught up on your EMRs uh then who has the time to really look at hey is your staff are they collecting the right way is the CPT code that's supposed to reimburse you know um uh $9 that you have to bill for 10 days straight yeah. you know there's it's it's so complicated yeah. to really go in uh through the minutia it's it's hard for a physician as a practitioner to do that so usually i've seen you need the most trusted person dealing right. with money in your practice mm-hmm. yeah so of course you can hire for that but who's going to be your most trusted person someone mm-hmm. in the family and usually 
you've seen that, you know, uh, a family member doing the collection doing the part collection. or the hiring You're part. absolutely yeah. right. You're absolutely right. But the, the amazing thing is, even from the beginning part of it, he was not so much involved in this whole process, you know. Right. And of course, now he's not anywhere involved, you know, because everything is done, you know, we've, we've got it systematic, done so well, you know, our system is uh, so well organized, you know, it's like a machine that is... Yeah, I mean, not to speak out of turn and not just because she's my mom, but when I was working on the business side of things, her office ran the most efficient. They didn't have a lot of um, money due with their patients. Um, they, their collections were on point. It was rare that the insurance company wasn't paying a claim or getting denials. So her staff is, I mean, her office really runs really efficiently. Which is very rare yeah. because uh, to run an efficient office, it, it takes a while. You've got to have that vision to run an efficient office mm-hmm. because uh, a lot of times people just leave it like, you know, um, uh, just leave it in the hands of a uh, practice manager thinking that is but, but the right I, way of doing I, it. Yeah, I made it. it a point to, if I don't know anything, I will go and ask them. I love it. Explain it to me. I don't team. understand it. Yeah, they're part of your team and you're Yes, di- and yes, and that's the way I and see it. And and they have no problem explaining to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, the business part of it, I mean, the whole thing I have learned from my staff, I, I have absolutely zero knowledge. Even it. in my residency, I nothing, there was never about private practice taught. Actually, my one of my colleagues went to UT, UTMB campus, Liz Hedden. She gave a lecture on practice management to the fourth year residents who were coming out. You know, she did a lecture on that. She said, I have to teach these people. You know, I learned a lot only by, by practice, you know, how when I was doing the practice. I never knew anything when I graduated residency, you know, you know, and that's so true, you know, and treating patients only 20% of the game, 80% is how you deal with your staff, how you deal with the patients, you know, compassion and kindness and respect is so important. Absolutely. I mean, they are, they are another human being. You just listen and they say, my goodness, thank you, doc. You listen to me. That's I mean, that is, is everything. Yeah. That sound manners in a And it is amazing is what the patients did, yeah. the, the expectation. And that is what I see myself have grown in this, mm-hmm. you know, from what I was, you know, when I was, you know, looking at how can I make things better? You know, how, how can I fix this problem? To what I'm seeing right now is, you know, how can I make their lives better, you know? not fixing the problem. How can they be happy? What is important for them is more important than what is important for me. It doesn't matter what I what I want for this patient. What is important is what the patient wants for themselves. And that is that is what I I tell my patients all the time. You tell me what you want and I will do what you want. No, I love it. And then so thirty years. She's been in practice for thirty years, which is amazing. Now, where where to now? I know you've already uh, lowered your hours. The re- and the reason I'm asking this question is a lot of physicians I've seen usually don't have a succession plan and they need to continue working because they have, you know, physicians have, uh, they, they get used to a certain level of income. Uh, sometimes it's not necessary that they have, you know, uh, invested for extra income or a lot of their income is just tied to their practice and the ancillaries, and then once their practice stops and the ancillary stops, 
and everything stops for them. But the so, amazing thing is that's what I'm saying, you know, uh, you were asking me, how was my husband involved in this, you know? I remember when I was started the group practice, you know, when we started the IRA, you know, I remember mm-hmm. we had SEP IRA and, you know, when I did the IRA, the same amount when you're a solo practitioner, you have to do it Absolutely. for the same amount for the staff too. Absolutely. So there's limitations of what you can invest. Absolutely. So when I joined the group, my goodness, I have, uh, it, it opened my eyes to the opportunities, how much of money you can put aside. And I did not know this. Only, only after I joined the group, I knew it was about fifty-five to sixty thousand dollars a year. Yes, you can set aside by IRS. Yeah, and and, and these are, and, these are pre-tax dollars. Yeah, they're tax deferred. Yeah, and 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 I would fight with my husband and say, "No, we don't have the money to do it." He said, "No, we're going to find money. There's some way we're going to find." Yeah. And that good decision that I made. I am still seeing that good effect. Of course, now I'm not putting aside that money because I'm 60, 67, I'm going to be 68 years old. Right. So, so you got two years. years taking it out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so there's no point in putting. Yeah. So there's no point in putting any more money. So I'm looking at. But you know what I've done is I've done an amazing job. I have to credit to a great extent to my husband because he was the one who pushed me to doing it. Because I, mean, I was the one who would. Say, because, oh, we have to cut on this, cut on this, and you know, we have to come up with this kind of money. But it's amazing. Those are the kinds of things, you know, uh, that, I mean, I'm not going to just rely on my income. Absolutely. There's a That's lot of deal. money that I have set aside as part of my investments. That will be there. You know, I know it will mm-hmm. be there. Well, amazing. I know I know. there's something that my mom has shared with me um, that she probably um, slipped her mind. But because she has received so much from the psychiatric field she when she retires she wants to like you know donate her time to help people that don't have money yeah. that possibly wow. really have mental to do health that. I, problems that that's her way of giving I back want to go back and provide yes. free service for homelessness homeless people and I'm already approaching people to do it you know the you know I know I'm working Monday Tuesday Wednesday three days a week I'm going to work but Thursday and Friday, I'm going to set aside the three or four hours of time. But I'm going to do telemedicine. You know, I don't want to go anywhere. Absolutely. Just telemedicine of offering uh, services, free services for the disadvantaged. I want to go back and do it. That is amazing. That is amazing. Well, Dr. Bhaskaran, thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, we've really, really, uh, you know, enjoyed this, uh, this session. And thank you for thank, coming thank on. Thank you. Thank you for taking this time because I'm not somebody who likes to talk about themselves, but, uh, you know. You did a I, great job, though. <laughs> no, no. Uh, uh, it's very important because yeah. um, there's no one really talking about uh, these things openly. Mm-hmm. So other physicians can kind of take from that experience. Mm-hmm. There's literally no way. There's no book on it. Yeah. There is no one talking about it. There are people writing books on it, but they're like a marketing company. Yeah. And it's a very one-sided or any podcast that talks about these things that are more financially kind of just talk about the finance, the investment side and things like that. But to actually run an efficient practice, EMRs, and again, I still cannot think of that anti-kickback rule in- uh, yeah, No, in I'm trying space. to remember what that, you know, I know, <laughs> yeah, the, I word know, that I know the word that you're looking yes. for. It's just slipped my mind too. Yes. Uh, exactly, so no, this is very helpful. I mean. 30 years worth of experience and with, you know, I think we took maybe 
a little over an hour yeah. um, and going over this so it's all condensed and you know you, you're peeling all the layers for other physicians or other would be one of physicians or mm -hmm. anyone wants to even get into psychiatry mm -hmm. because it's a very rewarding field yeah very rewarding field. very rewarding and um, for me it is yeah. and that's why i cannot retire I love what yeah, I'm she, doing. Yeah, she, she cut back her hours, and then she calls me, and she's like, I'm bored. So I think I'm going to do half-day Friday. <laughs> and I'm like, Mom, whatever makes you happy, it's it's fine. <laughs> no, no, I love it. No, um, as long as you're giving back. And, yeah, that's it's right. amazing that you're and, wanting and to I'm most probably going to work that half a day as working with the homeless people. Yeah. I mean, there is a person that I've reached out to. Uh, to find out she's in the board of this homeless organization so i'm going to see how i can get involved yeah perfect well you know this is fantastic thank you so much thank you so much yeah i appreciate it thank, thank you, you. Mama. <laughs>